Got a deadbeat son who's in trouble yet again? This is a job for Superman! I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries. What I'll be doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time that I collected comics. Our comic this time around is going to be The Adventures of Superman number 428, which was originally released on February 19, 1987 with a May 1987 cover date and retailed for 75 cents. The cover by Jerry Ordway is a really dynamic one. It shows two guys holding someone hostage and they're getting their guns ready and the hostage looks surprised while the Superman busts through the wall behind them. It's a great one, and honestly, if it's not one of that many people remember from Ordway, that's because he stood so many amazing Superman covers throughout his career that it's hard to remember all of them. But honestly, I really like it. And I think that the only criticism I have is that at a glance, when I was nine years old, I didn't know the gender of the hostage. Uh, reading the issue, I know it's Jerry White, the son of pa- Perry and Alice White. But Jerry's got long hair in that late 1980s sort of way. So I suppose on the cover, he could be mistaken for a masculine-looking woman. But hey, it's one nitpick of an awesome cover, right? Anyway, our story is called Personal Best. The credits on this one are Marv Wolfman, writer, Jerry Ordway, artist, Tom Ziuko, colorist, and John Casanza, letterer. The editors were Andy Helfer and Mike Carlin, and Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. We open with a shot of Superman flying above some jet fighters that are exploding, and this is a part of a news report that details events from what I believe were in the previous issue, where Superman took it upon himself to act aggressively against the nation of Quarak. The report shows a montage of Superman's actions along with the confrontation that he had on camera with President Marlowe, where Superman is more or less issuing a warning to the country's premier, telling him to clean up his act. As a result, Quarak has kicked the press out of the country is now in dealing with internal strife. Next up on the news, however, is Perry White, who is testifying in the mob trial of Jay Falk. Clark and Cat Grant, who are watching the Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, discuss Perry, and Clark talks about how much he respects him as his boss. Cat flirts with him a little bit, and then Perry comes on the tube, talking tough about the mob and how the public trust must stay secure and be honored. Elsewhere, Jerry White, who is Perry's son, walks down the street with Jose Delgado, who is trying his best to talk to the young man into staying on the straight and narrow path. They part ways, and Jerry thinks about how his father has always been pushing him and how he resents that. At only 19, Jerry doesn't feel like he's done much for himself. Unfortunately, doing things for himself has meant being a part of a gang that he's trying to quit, and he comes upon some of those gang members who say that they won't let him quit, and they bum-rush him. 
They begin fighting, and the fight is broken up by two men in suits and trench coats who take Jerry and throw him into the back of a car. They then tie him up at an unknown location and force him to call his father. When the crooks talk to him, they tell Perry what their demand is. Kill the expose about Jay Falk and print retractions. Instead of telling his team of reporters who were in the office talking about the trial, about what just happened, Perry kicks them out of his office and does one of those classic chief rants, storming through the Daily Planet bullpen and telling everyone to get to work. Nobody knows what's going on except for Clark. Across town, Jay Falk is having a party, and at least a couple of people on the city council are in attendance. It's a swinging and classic Gatsby-style type of party. That is, until it's interrupted by Superman, who talks tough, smashes a sculpture, and then tosses aside a Fabergé egg in an effort to press Falk for info. He leaves and then flies up and snatches Antonio Corsetti off the ground and flies him through the air. Corsetti wigs out, and then Superman drops him off on the top of the Daily Planet globe. Crissetti, scared of heights and fearing for his life, decides to talk. And then we cut to a bar somewhere in Metropolis where Superman asks the bartender where Louis Lippy is because he might have some information on Jerry's kidnapping. One of the bar's tough guys picks a fight with a man of steel and bruises his knuckles a little bit before Superman talks to another guy. Seeing that he really can't get much out of the bar's patrons, the man of steel leaves, but not before getting the name of the tough guy who took a shot at him, whose name is Bibbo. Superman flies across town while Perry sits at his computer and tries to write a retraction to the article, but he can't bring himself to do it. Alice comes in to beg him to write the story so that the kidnappers won't kill Jerry and he'll be safe. Perry swears they'll get their boy back. Meanwhile, Louis Lippy goes back to his place with the girl and is confronted by Bibbo, who roughs him up in order to get the information that Superman was looking for earlier. Louis, who doesn't want to get hurt, tells Bibbo that Jerry is being held down by the docks. And then Louis realizes that this isn't Bibbo at all, it's Superman. And Superman tells Louis that if Bibbo is going to get hurt as a result of all this, he may have to talk to Louis's boss. As Perry continues to write the retraction article, Superman finds Jerry, busting through the wall of the building where he's being held, taking care of the crooks and rescuing the boy. He flies Jerry back to his parents, and father and son have an argument where Jerry yells about how the paper has always meant more to Perry than his son, and he winds up storming out of the White's apartment. You know, I try to make these synopsis as quick as possible, because there's this quite a bit packed into this issue, and as for my view, I'll start with the artwork, because I really have less to say about it than the story. Because it's just simply gorgeous. I mean, it's Jerry Ordway, who at this point could really do no wrong, and especially when it came to Superman, and it really shows here. The action is dynamic, and every character is clearly defined. Plus, he gives us the first appearance of Bibbo, a character who he'd really develop over the course of his run in the title as its writer a few years down the road. In fact, this is Bibbo's last appearance until Adventures number 447, which is an episode that's part of the lead-up to Exile and is part of the early post-Burn era. But yeah, Ordway does an excellent job illustrating what's got to be one of the most street-level Superman stories I've ever really read. And let's talk about the story, because as I was reading and then rereading it for this recap, I was struck by how non-super the villains are. I want to go out on a limb and say that this was reminiscent of a very early Golden Age Superman story, even though I have not read a ton of those stories, so I really can't say that with authority. But from what I've read, there are quite a few of those where he's 
not flying through space or facing off against the contraption created by someone in his rogues gallery, but Superman's facing off against common criminals or system systemic corruption. You've definitely got that here, because the criminals have essentially been hired by the mob to press Perry White into dropping an investigation and an expose article. Not only is this very street level, there are elements of this that could very well be suited to a character such as Batman. And I'm not going to say that it's a knock to the story. I'm just saying that I could totally see someone important in Gotham getting in touch with Batman and asking him to rescue his kidnapped son, and Batman do some th- doing some things similar to what's going on here. I could see Batman going into the bardic information, either as, I don't know, Matches Malone or, or as himself. In fact, I'm pretty sure that sometime around this issue came out, um, it was maybe a couple months before, but there was this Mike W. Barr, Alan Davis scene during their Detective Comics run where Batman and Robin actually do go to a bar in the senior part of Gotham to shake down some criminals for information. So it's not far-fetched. But whereas Batman type of stories don't always work for other superheroes, it actually totally works here. Wolfman and Ordway are really good at using Superman only when they need to, and taking advantage of having Clark Kent as a character who is more than Superman in disguise. Now, I'm not an authority on the Man of Steel in the 80s, but my recollection based on what I've read from the pre-crisis era was that, just before these issues, um, was that many of the stories tended toward the supervillain or science fiction type of stuff rather than the street crimes and international politics, which is what it was in the last issue. Yes, two months prior to this, you have Superman and Apocalypse and the Legends crossovers, but there is still a sense that the Man of Steel is newer to the job than he was in those last days of the Julius Schwartz era. And it really works here. Quarak, if you're unfamiliar with it, is a fictitious country in the Middle East that is a stand-in for, well, just about any place where there might be turmoil, and it winds up having a pretty rich history within the DCU of this era. In fact, about five or six uh Years after this was published, the villainous Cheshire would blow it up in an issue of Deathstroke the Terminator. Here, we've got a wrap-up from last issue done very well through Cat and Clark watching ENN, and I have to give props to Wolfman, who does this very naturally. It makes total sense that Cat and Clark are watching uh, television news in the Daily Planet office. I'm, I'm sure that newspapers kept an eye on TV news back then, probably just as they do now. And Perry's son being kidnapped as a result of what Perry is doing right now out of a out of a number of police is is right out of a, a number of police procedurals of the day, as well as a classic comic book type of scenario. In fact, while the entire plot is a bit formulaic when you do boil it down, Wolfman does a great job at making it seem fresh. I like watching Superman use his strength to intimidate. In fact, in the scene where he picks up Corsetti and drops it on the him on the Daily Planet Globe. I couldn't help but think of those two scenes in Superman the movie where he encounters criminals on his first night, you know, something wrong with the elevator, and then uh, bad vibrations. Wolfman peppers Superman's dialogue with similar wisecracks, and he does it in a way that is natural and therefore actually works instead of trying to shoehorn a Christopher Reeve imitation to the comic book. Furthermore, there's a lightheartedness to some of these scenes, especially the moments where Bibbo punching him in the gut and Superman's just standing there drinking a glass of water, that makes them really great, and really makes this a Superman story, instead of, say, a Batman type of story that happens to star Superman. I'd also like to add that the ending is also what makes it worth the read, because while Jerry's rescued, his tension with his parents is completely unresolved. So many times we've seen stories like this, where the child's life being is in danger, is what makes all the parties involved realizing that family is important, and they have to patch up the differences, etc., etc. Here... 
The tension has nothing to do with Jerry's kidnapping. Jerry has turned a life to a life in a gang because he's essentially rebelling against a father who he believes is married to his job and holds his work family in higher regard than his actual family. I can't speak to how White was portrayed in pre-crisis, except that I know he was married to Alice, but I like how Wolfman is exploring the personal life of and fleshing out a supporting character who, to people who hadn't read a lot of Superman comics, might have only been known for the yelling, don't call me chief, or something. I'd also like to say that as far as supporting cast members go, Cat Grant has been a pleasant surprise. I haven't read comics from this era for a long time, and I haven't heard much commentary on them for a while because it's been a few years since I listened to the early episodes of From Crisis to Crisis. Cat, at least in the last issue I looked at, was portrayed as quite a flirt, and the first impression I think that a number of people had of her was that she was a bit of a bimbo, which is the stereotype of a gossip columnist. But we'll see a little more about her in the next issue, and the way she's been fleshed out a little bit in these stories I have read, well, there's definitely more to her, and we do see that our first impressions were inaccurate. Yes, she flirts with Clark here, but she's not throwing herself at him, and it's not done in a cartoonish sort of way. If anything, Clark's flirting back, and Wolfman is writing a subtle chemistry between the two of them that therefore makes their quick interaction very realistic. I have to say that I miss stories like this, where there's a one-and-done main story with little beats or subplots or character moments. It's not to say modern comics don't have anything going on themselves, but sometimes the decompressed storytelling style doesn't lend itself well to the development of a supporting cast the way that this did. And even then, it took writers like Marv Wolfman, who was a veteran by this point, to make it work as well as it needed to. This story has been reprinted at least once, and Superman the Man of Steel Volume 3, and is available digitally on Comixology, so I'd recommend picking it up and reading it, especially if you're looking for a good Superman story for the post-crisis era, but don't have the time to invest in some of the larger storylines. And with that, I'm going to take a break. I'll be back in a moment. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, do, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. well, my pr- It definitely built, built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. So there are some comics that I have vivid memories of buying, and uh, this is actually one of them. In fact, I know that I didn't buy this off the stands when it was new, because the day I bought it, I also bought Adventures number 429 and Superman number 7, so it was at least at some point in April of 87 or so. I do, however, remember where I bought it, and that's where the story begins. I've said that there was a Riverdale quality to my hometown, and that is really true. Sable is one of those small towns on Long Island that has a main street and diners and pizza places and bakeries, and when I was a kid, was a 
bike and walking accessible in a way that the subdivision where I currently live is isn't always like that. Granted, my subdivision has its fair share of trails, and you could walk or bike to the local supermarket, which makes it a little more convenient than the town where Amanda and I were living a few years ago. But it's still not the small town where I grew up. At the same time, Sable had its different parts. There's a neighboring town named West Sable, which has its own story and has its own character in some regard. And then there's the northern part of town, which really owes itself more to the... uh, tract housing developed in the 70s and 80s and the southern part of town which was developed decades earlier and which is where I grew up. The northern part of Sable is bordered by New York Route 27 which is also named Sunrise Highway and is several lanes wide with service roads. Sunrise Highway runs all the way from Brooklyn where it begins at the Gowanus Expressway all the way out to Montauk Point which is as far east as you can go on the south shore of Long Island. Sable is completely south of Sunrise Highway. In fact, everything north of it is either Bohemia or Holbrook. The eastern border of Sable is the town of Bayport, and that's more or less designated by Broadway Avenue. And actually, I'm sure the border is slightly east of Broadway, but for story's sake, we'll just say it's there. And at the corner of Broadway and Sunrise Highway sits a Target. Well, except back in 1987, the Target wasn't there. Instead, there was a building that once housed the 2001 Roller Rink and was the home of the Atias Flea Market. Now, this place was notoriously sketchy. In fact, I think over the years there was more one story, more than one story about some guy luring a kid into a bathroom or a, a fight breaking out or something. It was definitely not the type of place that you would go to alone when you were under 18. And to be honest, it had gained such a bad reputation by the time that I was 18 that I didn't want to go there at all. Which is a shame because I'm sure that I could have found something worth buying there as far as collectibles go. Maybe someone selling old toys or comics or something. Because at least in 1987, there was a guy way in the back who was selling comic books. I don't know what prompted my mom to take us there one night. Maybe a friend of hers had told her there was something there worth buying there. She was going to check it out. Maybe there was something advertised. I have no idea. All I know is that one Friday night we went there and I happened to leave money and have money in my pocket because of uh, something. Maybe allowance, maybe leftover money from a gift or whatever. But I had enough that I was able to buy three comic books. And I didn't intend on buying the comics. I just happened to be going from booth to booth for with her and my sister and I found this guy selling comics at cover price. I was at that point buying G.I. Joe and Transformers comics, but I didn't don't think I saw any that I didn't already have, or else I would have bought those. So I looked around, and, and I do know that Superman number 7 caught my eye because of the way that Byrne draws his face on that cover. It's very, very Christopher Reeve-esque, which is something I'll get to in my episode about that comic. Plus, it looked cool. The two Adventures of Superman books were there, and I already had 424, so I figured, well, I'll pick these up, because... Well, you know, I had another issue, the series. So I got my books and I paid the guy. And I remember that at one point we stopped at a booth near the front of the building that had toys in it. Not really good toys. These were the type of really crappy toys you get in like birthday party favors as prizes or at arcades or something. Anyway, there's this one game with a bunch of fish. We're in a pond and you use a magnet and a fishing rod to fish for them. You probably know the type of game I'm talking about. My sister asked for it, and my mom said no. Her justification was that, well, I got something. Now, my mom was per- quick to point out that I spent my money, my money, on the comics. And that she didn't buy them for me. And she wasn't going to spend her own money on something that would probably 
only be used once and break or whatever. Long story short, she told my sister no. Well, Nancy had a freaking meltdown over this. I mean, epic, epic tears, screaming right there in the flea market to the point where my mom dragged her out of there and put her in the car and she like wailed all the way home. I mean, I'm pretty sure my mom was pissed and let her have it when we got home and I think I felt a little guilty because I wound up getting something and she didn't. Granted, Nancy was six years old at the time and I suppose my mom could have gotten her the fish game, but to be honest, she might not have had a lot of money or purse at the time or wanted to teach a quick lesson about how you just because your brother gets something doesn't mean you do, which by the way, I appreciate even though I only have one kid and won't ever actually have to teach him this lesson, hopefully. But no, really, to this day, whenever I look at the cover of these three issues, I see my sister with a beet red face and tears streaming down her cheeks and screaming bloody murder about this fishing magnet game she didn't get and me just feeling simultaneously guilty and embarrassed as we like left as quickly as we could. It's kind of funny the memories that certain purchases drag out of you at random times when you're podcasting 30 years later. But that'll do it. I'll be back on February 24th with a look at G.I. Joe's Special Missions number 5. So until then, feel free to leave a comment uh, on the on the post either on popcultureaffidavit.com or on Facebook. Um... Feel free to email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening and take care.